This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance... And a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey, all. This is the second half of my conversation with music and audio producer Stephen Levitt for his show, The Language of Creativity. In the last episode, we talked about the stories we create and how we so often attach ourselves to them and why in our work, play, and everyday life. So for today, we'll continue from that note into not only the tale that I wrote, but how I learned from that journey and what it entailed, both the how and for whom I provide. I hope you enjoy. Well, and that's so true, especially now, because people like to identify with ideology or group. I would say ideologies have become a huge thing. Uh, What you believe or align with defines you. A friend of mine had this quote, and he probably got it from somewhere else, but I really liked it. It was, to reduce someone to a concept or an idea is to do violence unto them. So in other words, we're all unique humans who have many perspectives of gray areas on many things, maybe things we care a lot about, things we care a little bit about. But the moment I say, Jared, you're a Democrat, or (laughs) Steve, you're a Republican, you have reduced me or I have reduced you to something that is untrue, and that is violence. Yeah, you are a character and probably in all likelihood a caricature. Exactly. I'm not a Republican, by the way, nor a Democrat. (laughs) But that's what I'm frustrated with politics right now is seeing this identity that has been reduced to a name, meaning you all of a sudden agree with a hundred things. And it's impossible. No one is going to check the same box on all those things. And there's such nuance to even the most complex and unsolvable 
of philosophical quandaries that we find ourselves in. It's not one nor the other. There is so much nuance and humanity to it that there is, like you said, a validity to each story. So here's fundamentally, this is not a new realization. This is something we were looking at back in the 80s and 90s even as a consequence of the internet. There is more information than we can make patterns of, and from that makes sense. Exactly. And therefore, we attach ourselves to the ones that justify and satisfy and explain. And we are reluctant, by and large, to move from those because that means letting go of the answers they provide to some extent. Going back to that place of what if to find why. And yeah, this is when we talk about creation, I and being an artist is important. I might be, because it's been so long since I've read Candide, but I believe there's a chapter, if I'm not mistaken, where they encounter a sailor and his wife, right? And they travel together. And at one point, the, the sailors, they're asked the sailor, what does he do? Pangloss and Candide. And the sailor replies, I'm an artist. To which, <laughs> and he says, my art is life. And it sounds so pat, right? But his actual answer is, I try to make living an art. I try to be mindful and aware. And I'm going to go back to something one of my teachers from back in USC, James Reagan said, he's a poet, two-time Fulbright scholar, phenomenal orator. When he was teaching his poetry, he said, the first step to telling is to be aware, to simply sit there, be present, and be aware. And you have to, not necessarily, I would say, suspend who you are, but allow that to be part of everything else around you, to not make a judgment or call in that moment, and just receive. You'll go back to making stories out of that again anyway, because that's how we work. I find myself doing that so often in my work because I have to, by my own nature and the way I write, embody other characters and see what drives them and why. And I don't always agree with those motives or desires. Sometimes they are things that horrify me, and I want the story, their life, their choices to be a different way. Right. There's a general in the work that I'm writing, Dolores. She orders a war crime that's committed to be committed. Later on in her life, she is raising one of the survivors of that. Right. Until, of course, Chekhov's gone. He isn't because that truth will come to light somehow. Right. In this case, when one of the other soldiers from that time arrives and he confronts her about it as a teenager. And in his mind, he's constructed the story prior to the fight or in that moment of her using him to redeem herself and justify her actions. And replies, no, not at all. You're here to remind me of how much of a monster I can be at times. And it's one is because that's what teenagers do, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Tell the adults that they're monsters. And sometimes they're right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, she doesn't want to forget. Right. Redemption in her case, this case, isn't something that's honestly on her mind. She committed to a choice she's willing to live by. In her mind, it was the right one, but she doesn't want to forget the choice she made and the consequences of it. So that's why she's willing to take a in. And that is not at all who I thought she would be or is. And this isn't to say I think she's right even. It's I had to step aside and not choose for the story I'm writing its life. Right. It's not what your morality would do in this case, but you are allowing the story to take it there because this character is making a different set of choices. She makes awful, difficult, monstrous choices and is willing to live by them. And yeah, I could go into the whole 
because of XYZ in her childhood. Doesn't matter. Well, let's let's pivot for a second on something because I'd like to talk about the new weird genre for a minute because mm-hmm. I know that some of your writing is uh, is out there for people and and that's actually what people love about that genre and <laughs> exploring some of those facets of human nature. So just had to throw that into the conversation for a minute. Genres in fiction are weird because they are essentially business tools to sell what people do for creative life, and it's a it's a moment where where the work of art meets the art of art. And that sounds a little clunky, but that's because it is. We have to get people to buy the story somehow. And it's easier for you to decide if you're most likely, if you're going to like a story by having a sense of what kind of story it might be a genre, right? Yeah, you, or, have to, you have to form some kind of identification because that's how we reduce the cognitive load of infinite choice. Yeah. So, business being focused on profitability, sustainability, and survival. Or let's just say you want people to read your story. Right. And <laughs> because you want to actually read the story and for the, the story somehow to survive, which requires someone else to engage in it, take it into their life somehow, and continue from there. You have to get it to them first. So there are some hard, pragmatic choices that go into that. And genre is one of them. My work tends to, I hate the terms, for instance, speculative fiction, literary fiction, Someone asked me, I asked one day an expert, what does speculative fiction mean? He goes, well, speculative fiction entails books that ask what if. And my response is, so books. <laughs> Just <laughs> stories in general. In a world. Literal hobbits are real and they eat breakfast three times a day. What goes in this category? Stories that begin with in the beginning. <laughs> okay. Not a helpful category. Obviously, tons of subcategories. It was made partially from a business end to encompass science fiction, new weird, fantasy, horror, et cetera, et cetera, because they all speculate. I don't like jargon. <laughs> so I do, however, tend to, ha- tend to lean into the horror, the weird, the scientific, or the fantastic in the stories. If you listen to my most recent episode of Tigers, I found that I, I will call them dragons because that is the easiest cognate for it. There are big, monstrous, ancient, horrifying things in the world that I did not expect to be there outside of the myths and stories about them. But then, sure enough, the characters went to such a strange and unusual place that they found one of the last and made a bargain with it. And it was beautiful and fantastic. And if I had spent that whole time going, right, but no, it never would have happened. So instead, just as I let Adam's father hand to him as a child a small storytelling device, and from that shift into this spacewalk on a defunct ship in the middle of nowhere where detritus floating around it and what that journey is like. Because the beauty of stories is they can go anywhere provided it's true based on what has happened before or what will happen next, right? I, there's a fundamental exercise I do with all of my clients, whether they're doing storytelling for business, for their own creative work, for hobby. There are three things you need to know to tell a good story your world and characters, where your tale begins and how it will end. A lot goes into those. There's a good number of truths, small and little, as well as untruths that go into defining those. But if you have that specificity, you'll know based on what's possible, based on what can happen, what should and will happen next in that moment. And the ending of that work, the ending, the thing you arrive at, the point you're giving this back to your tribe is the inevitability. It's 
the point where I have to act. I have to get the book. I have to buy the bottle of Shiraz. I have to make this part of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment, big moment, where it sits in their hearts and resides. The smaller moment, of course, occurs in every scene because each of those scenes, those beats in between, has its own little life, its own little journey that you take them on. The rhythm, the music to that. I, I think, as I've mentioned to you before, I learned writing and music together. So hmm. for me, the best explanation which came to me by way of my folks is that grammar is musical notation. Hmm. It is there to arrange flow of words mm-hmm. and to help you understand how they should be played. Because I hate it, I struggled with it for so long until I got the why of it. Likewise, math. Math is simply a way of expressing through symbolic representation dynamics and systems and relationships in the world. Oh, me too. I like to say that if I had learned why behind math, I would have been all in. But I resisted math because everyone wanted to teach it by rote, the same way they teach grammar. Like, this is a noun and this has to go first. And you're like, but why? And so often we hear the story of the artist as one who has to go on a journey of suffering and then follow the Aristotelian model to deliver the great American novel. That's the movie story. That's the one we see in Hollywood films because it's limited in terms of time and capacity. And it has to be simple and concise. So yeah, you get the struggling because there's conflict and eventually there's a great breakthrough and then a huzzah moment and oh, we've arrived there because an hour and a half or two hours have gone by. The reality, you're not on video right now, but there are drafts upon drafts of work that I've revised. There's stuff that will never come to final light in the book. I had to practice. I had to write essentially three books to find one. Because, as you know, there's skill, there's effort, there's time, and there's a journey to that that does not end. Most, the weirdest thing anyone ever said to me as a potential student was, I don't think at 40 I have anything left to learn. <laughs> and oh, that could sound arrogant. It wasn't, I think, intended to sound arrogant, and I don't think he meant to in that moment. But I was confused because then what are you living for as an artist? If you think your creative capacity is complete, right? I was so confused by it. There's still things I learned today. And my students, that my students teach me, that they help me find a way to define. Yeah. And there's joy in that too. Oh, I feel the same way. You know, it's, I'm a perpetual student and I love when a teaching relationship flips and you become the student. That delights me to no end. I mean, it's just to me, it's an exchange. And um, just as we're learning from the person, we're learning from ourselves. And we're also learning from where that other person is in their life and the perspective that they bring based on they have children. They don't have children. Uh, They're young. They're old. They've had physical ailments. They're perfectly healthy. Whatever that fresh energy is that you get from a student that is looking at things for the first time going, wow. And then you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Wow. <laughs> like, this is pretty cool. Like, I forgot how cool this was, you know? And I can remember back to being 16 and encountering this part of music for the first time as well. And it just renews your spirit. I remember reading Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains. And I'd been a prolific reader prior to that, but it was mostly stuff. And I read There Will Come Soft Rains. I thought, so that's what words can do. Mm. It's such a weird, somber, beautiful, strange piece. You read the Kilimanjaro device, which is his send off to Hemingway, hmm. where he tries both to emulate while also embodying his own style too. 
And I had a chance to listen to Bradbury shortly before he died. And hearing him speak cool. at the LA Times Book Fair, I could see finally how he tells stories. Hmm. Fundamentally, he was an orator that just wrote things down. Oh, wow. But his actual process involved having multiple typewriters. They slid back and forth between because he was not, he was a nonlinear thinker. See, that's what fascinates me. Thank you for sharing this because for me, process is like what you, you discover the tools with which you work that work for you. And maybe other people have a set of tools and a couple of those work for you. And, but there's such diversity within mm-hmm. the actual craft part of the art. There's the art, which is the thing you're, you're, seeing that you want to bring into the world there's the medium which is books or music or podcasts or whatever and then there's the the methods and the methods take developing the methods take learning and self-trust absolutely that's why when folks come to me i have beginning points we start with i have things i can use along the way on that journey right but a good portion of it is taking all that and adapting it to the way they work, to their own mind. Because you have to ultimately build, create your own set of tools that you can paint and illustrate and make the story you're trying to tell with. And part of the joy for me is, and I didn't think this would be true, but it is, the the art of crafting that with them, right? Of sitting down with a student working on a timeline for the narrative and going, you know, I think a scattered chart would work here. And let's lay out a scatter chart that notes stories a child has heard before and after they were born and what the emotional weight of that was in terms of significance, in terms of value, in terms of tone or hue. And after we've mapped all of that out, let's see what story emerges out of this process. What look like the big moments? What are the little moments? And what becomes the, the why now, the starting point in the story of himself that he tells now, right? Because for, in her case, Trying to work from the big was stymieing, was terrifying. There were all these large dramatic moments, but she couldn't find the small ones that, put, that bring those together. The important lunch, right? The, the scene that doesn't seem like it should have any weight to it, but if you get down to the particulars there, all the truths of character and the story both are laid out. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to go, go back to Ray Badbury. Because nonlinear thinking, that's been my biggest critique that I've, ex- that I've received in the business world is that people can't follow me when I'm like here, there, blah, 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 blah. And I, I know there's value in that. But I too, I tend to speak things. And when I speak, it's much easier to pull all this together. But what I find is that most people aren't auditory. Most people are visual or some other kinesthetic or something. So tell me more about what you learned from Bradbury, because you said you had to be there to notice it. I've read a lot of Bradbury. <laughs> I've read most of his work. So I'm fairly familiar with his prose, with his style. I will give you this phrase he passed on to us at the end of the presentation, because the gist of his actual argument was that we have to write from love. As cantankerous and angry an old man as he was at times during the speech, his fundamental message was that you have to love the stories you're trying to tell, and the people you're trying to want to give them to, to pass them on to. And the way he ended it was this. He said, man is the flesh of God moving through the universe. Mm -hmm. And you look at his stories of astronauts coming down to the visitor. There's a classic one for you, right? 
the ship of astronauts who keep on missing the arrival of the visitor every planet they go to and think it's one of their arrivals who is just scamming the locals. Hmm. But as they go on and on, that seems like either that's so true that it might be true or it's something else entirely, but I have to give up the story I'm attached to. Dandelion one, of course, is the classic, his actual mythologized take of his own childhood, watching his neighbor build the happiness machine only to find that it's not something you can make by spare parts. You have to live it. The going down to the attic and finding the jars that say savor and relish and wondering what those words mean beyond the ingredients in the jar. And hearing him speak was like going to the Writers Museum in Dublin and listening to Joyce recite his work. Hmm. It unlocked the key from, I get intellectually how this works, to I hear and feel you now. It's why Professor James Reagan recites his work, because if you can be there listening, if he's not buried in his paper, but performing, reciting, orating the story inside the poem, embodying it, right? I passed on some of my work to a mutual friend of ours, Julia, who writes in The New Weird a lot, and her book is coming out soon. And her reply to me was interesting. She said, there's such intentionality in this first-person narrative of Adam as a child. All of the words on the page seem to have such an emotional weight to them. They seem to matter more than they should to someone that age. Like he's trying to not just describe, but define what is happening in that moment. And it's funny because like with my friend Nick, I was at a moment where I'm writing a funeral scene between two of the main characters. They're doing a short, a small funeral for Connor's older brother, both of them knew. And I don't remember the exact details, but he and Adam are talking. And this is way, way into the book here and into my writing. And Connor looks at Adam and goes, you're blind. As a question, Adam goes, I've always been. And I'm on the show going, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. So you didn't know this about this character until this moment. (laughs) No. (laughs) So yeah, there's that kind of heart palpitating moment of, oh, because again, like with the dream, this was I knew this to be a truth. I, I even and I, I do this if you hear my in my voice notation annotations. I have a recorder. I'll go okay. I'll cue the critical mind rolling back. We're going to circle back to there because I'm nonlinear in how I build scenes as I'm they're coming to me. Right. Let's just go through that again. Follow the same truth. See where they lead. And of course, since they're true, they lead to that truth. And I get, I took a deep breath and went okay. When I get home, I'm going to look over the prologue and see if that's always been true. And if my fear of, do I have to rewrite the whole book again? (laughs) I went back to the prologue and I reread it. And you know what I realized? Because it's first person. This is just the story he's telling himself of what is. And in that second or third scene where he talks about how all of this began, this fight between his two parents, it's him trying to understand how these two divergent narratives of the world they provided for him occur and why he can't make sense of them anymore. Because where they used to be a unified idea, way of the world being, he started to see the seams between the two, the ways in which one of them can't sustain the lie that the other would shape. And since all he can see is what they tell him is there and what they help him to see, he has to tell himself the story of everything that's there, the colors, the shapes, and everything. Hmm. And this goes back to the fantastic, right? This is where I had to accept it. in this world, there are those too full of fire and those who dream too much. And this is literal and figurative. Adam is the former. 
His mother is one of the latter. She can certainly help him to see in a way. It's not what is actually there, but it's a way to see. And I started writing these scenes of when he was a child, and they take him outside, and he'd run through the fields and they'd ask him, what color is the sky? What does that sheep feel like? And as he would tell them what he thinks is there, they'd make it a little more like that for him. Hmm. So that this world could be real and true. And this is where I guess we'll come full circle. You know, I said back early on that I've been writing since I was two. I told my folks about this, about this village he lives in that isn't entirely real, but kind of a dream in a bubble they create for him. And when he realizes that, it, the prologue is the moments before that collapse, right? It's beginning to understand how much of a lie there is here and why they fight. I told this story to my parents and they looked at me and they were speechless for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And they said, when you were little, you told us a story about the village of no tears. and." There was a village in which there were no tears and everyone was happy. And the child kept on asking, I want to see what the rest of the world is like. You say there are all these other places out there. And his parents kept on telling him, you don't want to go to the rest of the world. This place is fine. You can stay here. Everyone's happy here, right? Yeah. But he kept on insisting. They said, okay, fine. Let's pack your things. We're going to go on a little walk and we'll see what the other villages are like. So they go to the village where everyone's angry or the one where everyone's sad. And they go on their whole way around the road, around the path till they're back or almost back, and he's get tired because he's a child. He says, I want to go home, right? And they look and they go t- to each other and they look back at him and say, we know, but you can't. Hmm. And he goes, but why? And they have to explain to him that there is no village of no tears. Hmm. It's just what they told him it was like. And sure enough, when he goes back, he sees that the village of no tears is the village where everyone's sad, where everyone's happy, where everyone's mad. Hmm. And in the book I'm writing now, here it is. <laughs> and it just kind of found its way into this home that Adam lives in, that he survived and that he left and could not return to because it was never real in the first place, not entirely. Huh. In that, in the years after, in his adolescent years, he told himself or continued to kind of live in that story of what it was like because it was safer than trying to confront the reality of what happened mm-hmm. until he had to. And yeah, I had to, as Nick said, embrace the fantastic. I do believe it was possible for this to happen in this world, and then ask and find out why. And the moment I did, yes, this is how a blind child, a blind, blind man sees hmm. and what that world for him is like, and how it is a little weird and magical and different. Mm-hmm. And, and someone else may say crazy, but they don't even know. I should have been able to, like, the, the amount of work I do, I should have been able to see this truth sooner. Because I look back to my old notes with my co-host, Dave, and we had had a similar conversation about the other narrator, Connor, right? So let's talk process as an example. I have two narrators in a book. There's two timelines, now and then. First time I wrote the book, how many narrators do you think I had? One. And it was so damn confusing because you had no idea when anything was. Talking to my advisor, and she said, if you've got two timelines, why not have one person narrate each? Oh, I wouldn't even thought of that. Because that way, the voice itself, the person telling the story, the story being told, 
lets you know where you are, where you're at and why. Right. And the thing I added to that was, since it's two first-person narratives that juxtapose each other, all the pieces in between the interstitials mm-hmm. get to tell what the rest of the world is like. Right. Because that's was demanding to be there. So allowing the things that have to be, the space to be, is a huge part of the creative process, regardless of the medium you're in. But I, uh, well, let me ask you something. Are you the son or are you the king? So here's the funny thing. After I had looked back on that, I asked myself, where is this story? This, the dream I had was being told by someone not there. It was being written down by someone describing this scene as through the perspective of the king at the time. And I realized later on that's Adam's father right now. And he's got this whole body of work he's been writing that he hasn't shared with his son. And to the end of the book, when Adam finally comes home, they find some of that. And it's been annotated. Hmm. And the annotations are not something his father would know. But his father's gone a different, on a journey of his own kind. I'm not going to go into that here because that, there's a kind of full circle within that too. But the, I had to know who was writing and finding the story because the final, the, the epilogue, as it were, comes back around to that world of that time and that narrative and that same person telling the story of what's happening now with Adam and this older woman who's guiding him through the frozen old ruins of this same place, the same city, so many years after everything has happened, down to a tomb in the depths of the city. And there are things he sees on the wall, depictions, graphs, symbols, stuff that he you'll see in the prologue from one of the more surreal scenes in that. And what I'll share of it, because I don't want to spoil anything, when you want someone to continue with the story, you have to give them the thing that speaks to their heart, that makes them want to know, to demand why, right? And I'll give you this. Adam and Connor both wanted to revive the people they had lost, as well as all those who'd been lost in the process of them trying to find a way. And through most of the book, they find it's impossible. It just can't happen. So at the end of a book, either they have to accept that and move on, or there has to be some hope as to what they can do and why. Yeah. So the end of the book has to, the inevitability has to answer that somehow. I won't tell you how, mm-hmm. because that's the book. But the understanding of that led me to be able to go back through the book, rewrite it, return to the prologue, and to be able to accept now the, okay, yes, he's blind. Yes, there's a fantastic world within a world in terms of how he perceives things. And I'll be honest, there was a time where I went, I'm not going to talk about any of that on the podcast. But then I'm a storyteller and a storytelling coach. Part of what I do is help folks figure out how to tell their own. Necessitates that I walk you through the process, the choices we make, and why. So we can put spoiler tags in the episode itself around this if people don't want to engage in that element of it. But this is what I'm like when you're working with me. I'm usually a little more concise because we're telling more stories on a mm-hmm. podcast time. But you have to. This is why I work toward the specifics with you because those give the answers. If we're talking business, you have to know your audience. You have to know what currencies they'll provide you, time, information, money, and why and for what. Right. Those, and I, and I talk about audience, market, or tribe. I like the idea of tribe because in the nature of tribes for all their flaws and problems, there's the idea of reciprocity, right? One, that you're co-creating a thing or engaging in a thing together, but two, that you are here to provide for each other. Right. And if you're trying to sustain a relationship, it's one thing 
we can go purely commercial top market if this is a transactional engagement. I have a thing I want you to buy. Here's what makes you buy it. Okay, let's go on. If I want you to be part of the things I write, to be my audience, to be my fans, to follow the show, to identify with the company, the brand, and engage in things we create and make, yeah, then we talk tribe because that's where you sit down by the fire. You tell the stories at night. Mm -hmm. You identify with each other. Yeah, and there's a community to it. There's a connection to it. And this is the epiphany I had in music, and it's not a unique epiphany, which is that music genres have always exploded around a group. People listen to rock and roll and do the twist and they dance, or people do jazz and do the jitterbug. You know, people get together around punk rock and thrash and wear certain clothes. It's a much about the group identity as it is about the art that's being identified around. There's a podcast about Nirvana you might like then. It's called Heart Shaped Pod. <laughs> For two reasons. One, the host went in, the main host was a huge fan of Nirvana. And then he learned more about what Kurt was like. And that made his love of Nirvana more difficult. Mm. He brought in some other friends too, who had deeply personal reasons to be engaged in the grunge and that all music, you know, they were part of the tribe. One of them ended up sharing later on some of his own journal writings from that time. And they're, they're terrible. And he, you know, <laughs> he's reciting angrily the person he was at that time in his life. Huh. And watching it, how did I ever, but it's a, it's as much a journey about Kurt and his group of people creating music, right? As it is the folks who, learned to love and like that, coming to terms with the person he was beyond the character he had been in their life. Yeah. And, it, it, and you know what, that brings me back to the point about identity politics that I really care about is that people tend to deify or vilify humans that are mm. in the public attention. And it's so prevalent now to put people on a pedestal in the public life and then find out they're flawed and be like, we hate them now. We can't We can't have anything to do with them or their work. And I, I just feel like that's so inaccurate. Um, I think if we, if we knew a lot more about James Joyce, there's a lot of people who, you know, if, if you had a personal view in his life, I don't know James Joyce, I haven't studied him, but I'm guessing that there was quite a bit of alcohol and probably some mm -hmm. abuse and some terrible things that he might have said or done to people that, you know, just history doesn't have that same always on connection to the social media Twitter world that we have now with artists. And honestly, I think that's, that's part of why artists are so reclusive and private, especially authors, because they don't want their personal life to have anything to do with their literary life, especially if characters make choice like your general. Some readers might on social media see that as a reflection of you, Jared, and how you feel about the world and how could you do that, right? People have a really narrow view of art right now. I have a deep, dry, and very dark sense of humor. It's emergent on some of the podcasts more than others, but <laughs> for reasons I'm so profuse with emojis on social, it's to let you know, no, I am not at all serious about the thing I just said. <laughs> because otherwise people will, in person and online, believe entirely what I have said. So I find it useful to cue, just so you know, in case you didn't before, but just so you know, no, I'm not being serious about this. <laughs> it's difficult because yes, there was a time where the artist, although yes and no, Dickens toured the States with A Christmas Carol because we were so busy pirating his work. Mm -hmm. So 
Mark Twain, likewise, was one of the first recorded celebrity writers. Yes, I, I was thinking about him yesterday. Audio, photo, the man went on tours. He, he went to parties, probably, he was a socialite. Chautauquas is one of the earliest we think of as a celebrity artist, right? He probably, no doubt, got a lot of his material from these engagements of getting to know various peoples in social life because he was a satirist. Cantankerous, grouchy, <laughs> acerbic human being. Yeah. And one of my friends, Fanta Koi, they have been running their webcomic for a few years now, have a tremendous following, but they did have a struggle at one point with a younger audience wanting, and their families wanting the story to take a lighter tone and approach when it was in all likelihood it headed somewhere much darker. Mm-hmm. I tried to say it was Watership Down is fluffy bunnies. Watership Down also is fluffy bunnies that murder each other. But I think society it. needs that outlet too. I mean, that's been the argument about violent video games, but honestly, the it needs somewhere to go. We need murdering bunnies. <laughs> Watership Down the book is an incredibly interesting, weird, and complex. And you want to talk new weird, it borders on it. Mm-hmm. Rabbits fleeing for their lives, engaging in war, and reflecting upon the mythologies that guide them. <laughs> it sounds and, delightful. And in between, of course, there are, you know, rabbits and hares eviscerating each other. Uh-huh. As I said, it's a war and they're trying to survive. Yeah. And although if you want a deeply weird, dark take on it, someone, I think it was the robot chicken crowd, did a take on Watership Down with uh, the Fraggles. Oh, that's amazing. And it's really dark. <laughs> but it works because the, there's that same level of naivete in the initial forays out into the world there. And it's hard. You know, I was talking to my friend Ken the other day about how he's struggling with these essays going into the racist depictions of minority species and creatures. It's a big issue right now. Yeah. And how those are to the creators of the time or were to the creators of the time representative of minorities. Lovecraft is a prime example. The shambling, incomprehensible masses were a deliberate analog for the peoples he did not like or understand. Mm. And so yeah, there's I tease one of my my co-hosts about this because you get into arguments about hermeneutics, the interpretations, the meet whether the life of the artist matters in the work of the artist. Oh, right. And whether their intent matters in the experience of the work. And we can get into arguments about art is dead, God is dead, all that, because it's fundamentally the same argument. Mm-hmm. I go back to a few things here. First, if you want to create in the world we have now and you want people to engage in it, you have to engage with the world. That means finding the place that's comfortable, safe, and right for you and the tribes you want to work with and be a part of. I'm on Discord because it's a home for me. I'm on Twitter because a lot of writers are. I am not on Facebook because that's where a lot of writers aren't in a broad sense. We have Facebook communities, but it's, a, it's hard, I would say, in a 20,000-person community to really get any deep level or Q&A ongoing. There's just so much stuff, right? And part of why I'd like Discord is that we create a population that folks get invited to. We share, and yeah, we create our own little sub-languages and all that, but it's an opt-in. You choose to be a part of this and participate. So everyone committed to the work has that same goal in mind. And again, Discord can be used for the worst things too, but it's a Well, I think that's what the internet did. The internet allowed people to come together, not around 
location or society groups, but around interests. Needs, interest, and desires. Needs, wants, and desires, let's be honest. And it's revolutionary. It's like you said, and it could be the best thing and it could be the absolute worst thing. It can host all manner of humanity. And it's just the medium. What I would say is if you want to be a creator now in a professional sense, to have your work shared and sold or engaged in publicly, be present. Find a way that people can see and hear and feel and think about you in a way that feels natural to you. My, one of my coaches, she kind of likes to work off of the five languages of love approach, but expand them more into how we interact with the world. Oh, cool. As you and I, we're both auditory. However, when it comes to personal interaction, being among people and friends and family, I need physical presence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's been very hard for me to do this podcast without being able to have people in the room with me, because that's how I draw people out. I, I'm perfectly fine recording episodes all the time, but if I want to just be with people, I want to be with people in a space doing a thing. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think of that in me in, an, in, you know, in a recording setting, in a scholarly setting where I'm at the front looking, making notes. My teachers used to chide me for doodling all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of research has gone to show that's just a physical expression of how the brain is making sense of a thing. Right. And why would they tell you to stop doodling as if, you know, everyone's the same. Everyone's a carbon copy. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I can get very on a soapbox about that. But go on. At that point, the, the story that most teachers and where I was believed or engaged in was this behavior is a sign of not paying attention. The reality is I need to do a physical thing so I can pay attention. Mm-hmm. My hands and body need to be occupied doing a thing. That's why I can't do zazen, sitting meditation, but tai chi, yoga, swimming, hiking, right. those get to the place where I can create, I can find. That's why you're coming up with insights in the shower or on a walk. You have to, and this is why I said before, you have to take the wisdom, the advice given to you by your guides, your coaches, and with them, amend it, revise it to what works well for you. Mm -hmm. So true. It's not gospel. It's what's worked for them and what they see in you. And you have to take that without ego and say, maybe they're seeing something I'm not. However, you also have to have your own empowerment of going, I know what's right for me. I know what works for me. I'm blind and they can't see that. I go through the world and I know I'm blind, but they don't know that. And that's one of the beauties of writing Adam, because not being fully aware that the world he sees is different from the world other people see, I wrote it that way anyway. Things he sees are a little off-color or weird or fantastic, because he grew up in this deeply sheltered, cloistered life and survived mostly on the stories that were given to him. And in the small part of the world he was in, survived and escaped that, couldn't return to it, and was suddenly confronted by everything else outside. And he is, it's fascinating because he's the kind of person who will get through anything physically, but the amount of damage and wreckage left behind in the soul and the psyche on the way there to get by. It's one thing writing him when he's on his own and just kind of living through it. But, and here's a great example, he hates baths, as in it's fine for him to go jump in a river or a lake and wash up. But the idea of urinating bath, here is soap, Here's perfume, here is shower, here is all these other things to make you fit into the world. Yeah. 
Yeah. He hates baths. And I didn't fully get why, but now I do, because that's all part of some alien life that doesn't fully make sense to him. Right. You know, and I can joke about this in a different sense, because I did have the teachers way back when that said, take archetypes, create them, give them a twist. And I applied, you know, the Zodiac and all the things like that. And yeah, the book is called Here Be Tigers. If we're talking Chinese Zodiac, his sign is a tiger. That was a truth I found a while back. Does it define him entirely? No. But you want to know something funny? When I had to write, because it's Here Be Tigers with an S, there's plural, and Tigers Y, as in Lakes Tiger Tiger, or Here There Be Tigers, the thing they're used to write on maps, etc., to indicate the world that was unknown and still horrifying. Hmm. I don't plan for this. I, looking back, go, oh, right, that's what that is, too. Connor got into fights with his older siblings often and violently, and eventually his parents, they're divorced. His father says to his mother, he's yours, you take him, I can't. Huh. Just, he's yours, I'm done. So she drags him off to her house, which is packed, and there's only room in the attic for him. And I saw the scene as I was writing where She's trying to get him comfy. It's one of those attics with the pointed gable roof, and there's that window. Usually, there's like a little seat right before it, right? Yeah. Into a bed with a pillow, and he's sitting down there, and she walks in with this little stuffed tiger of plush and velour and velvet and felt and whatever else made she could find, and no two stripes the same. Huh. And they talk. But in that moment I was first writing, all I knew was that she walked in with a stuffed animal. I mean, everything you just described, I can see, by the way, because you were very and, descriptive. But to, to arrive there, right? All I knew initially was stuffed animal. Right. It has to be a tiger. I don't know why, but it has to. And then they start talking, and she explains to him is that this can take all those awful feelings you have and eat them and put them away mm-hmm. so that you don't need to have them anymore. And she's trying. And she's a mother of seven, one child's past birth. She's divorced, making a living on her own income. Yeah, she's doing what she can here, right? So yeah, here's a magical stuffed toy that can eat your bad feelings and make them go away. Is this a lie? Absolutely. But does it work? If it works, perfect. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She tells him the story and he goes, but that's not what real tigers do. They eat people. And she says, well, this one's different, right? right? Why? Because it's stuffed. And that was the thing I realized. Fundamentally, he goes, he would go deep enough into the why, the why, the why, that her final reply more or less is because I said so. <laughs> and he buys it because the story is so strong. I'm saying this is true about this thing in the world that I've created and given to you. Isn't that what magic is? And then finally, when I went back to rewrite after all of that, I'm going to the scene where Connor, after traveling for five years on his own in the war, goes to find Adam again to try one last time. And I have this description of Connor when he sees him. Yeah, so he's standing at the door at Adam's house and he hears Adam and his son behind walking up, turns around to see him. And this is the first time you're getting Connor's perspective on what Adam is like, because it's first person. Prior to that is Adam's perspective on Connor, the first time they met in an earlier scene, chapter two. And I, in Connor describing, I couldn't help but go back to that idea of the tiger, because in meeting this person, he met the monster he was told he never should become. Mm. Adam is left out feral in the wild to fend for himself. He's going to wear his stripes. Connor is the youngest of seven. He learns to scrap and to fight. and to hold on to that little thing and give to it what can't, you know, the monstrous about him, right? And here now, finally, in his travels, he's met what that actual beast is like. And I didn't intend for that symmetry at all, but the moment I did, I went, yeah, it's Here Be Tigers. Which is also the name of your company. Yeah, I pitched it there. I, uh, I'll see if I can remember this right. 
I'm not going to do the whole pitch, but the the thing I ended on, and maybe we'll end here, is because no idea can grow from mewling striped cub to teeth in your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. Where can, first of all, I know you have a place where people can get a hold of you if they want to work with you. You opened a story loop at the beginning of this episode with your friend and the rooftop and the New York scene and the trespassing. If people want to find out what happened (laughs) and hear the whole story of that, they can reach out to you in this particular place. Where is that? The best places to find me nowadays are one, herebetigers.com. That's with a Y. That's where you have most of the information about what I do as a business. Although we're launching a new service this month and we have one up and running now. The one up now is called 20 Minutes to Brilliance. That's our complimentary session where we sit down and find a great idea for you right now based on wherever you're at, the confusion, the inertia, the need for clarity. So that's 20minutestobrilliance.com. 20 is in 20.com slash tigers, again, with a Y. And you can sign up there and get your complimentary session. I'll put these links in the show notes too, by the way. So check them out. Thank you. The one we're going to launch next is our 90-minute deep dive. People have been pretty receptive to that, but it's an hour and a half session where we go into the thing, the challenge you're with, you're at, and find the solution. Sink our teeth into it, take a leap, right? I find an hour and a half is a good point to both get into the need, the want, the desire, and then where you'll be at or will arrive and how you'll feel when that's done, along with the solution, the journey, right, that gets you there. So that'll be later this month. And I've offered this to one of the other shows that's going to be rolling out, but we can talk, you and I, Steve, about maybe giving a couple of those to some lucky audience members. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, let's do that. That's fine, because it's, I find it, I've not received this kind of gift before, the one and a half to two hour conversation with an expert, with a guide, with someone who can help you past and move beyond the place you're at right now. Simply knowing there is a thing you can do, a specific action you can take, you come to me with the specifics, we'll find the solution that works for you. Well, you are, Jared, a maven. You're the kind of person who knows something about everything and not just something, but a lot of something. (laughs) So the word that comes to my mind is illuminate. There's certain things that you discovered along the process of writing your book that didn't change your narrative, but they illuminated it. They put a light on it that you didn't see it from that angle before. And now with this new knowledge, you can now move forward and flesh out the rest of your journey in this book or this creation. So what I would I want to let people know that you do is you help to illuminate their path. And I could think of no better person to say that for <laughs> when it comes to coaching people through not just their stories, but also the creative process. And I want to thank you personally for this hour and a half long therapy session that I just received. I was crying at some moments because some things you said are very deeply resonated with me on a personal level. So you just need to know that. Before I forget, the thing you just said, I, I have to share with you. I wrote a mission statement years ago about what I was setting out to do. And this is in my 20s, you know, back when I'm going to save the world. And there's a phrase you talk about, illuminate, toward the end of it, where I describe lighting a candle along the way for the stumblers in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. So yeah, illuminate is the right word. Just trusting the way will show itself. 
and to move in that direction. Even if it hasn't become apparent or clear in your vision yet, it's deep down, it's there. The, the thing I'll, I guess I'll end with to kind of, we want to talk process, just to think about as a contemplation, Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours, right? The, the, the genius. It's a, a rubric, it's not exact, an exact number. I don't know the num- I don't know how many stories I've read at this point or how many I've reread or processed or gone through. But if you don't know what your brilliance is yet to play off of illumination, think about what you've dedicated so much of your life to already. Mm. What story that is, what work that is, a thing you've tried to express. Then listen to this again. Absolutely true. Um, Jared Surf, thank you for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. One last thing, is there anywhere on social media that people can follow you? Sure. So on Twitter, you can find me at Jaser the Realist. I have to really switch that because it's like 11 or 12 years old now. I'm probably going to toggle everything over to at HB Tigers with again with a Y. So it's H B T Y G E R S. Someone else had here be. Mm-hmm. I, I have to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> you must. You send the killer bunnies after them. I'm thinking a little more Highlander, but that works too. Hey, I dig it. All right. And then your book that's coming out is called Here Be Tigers. It's not out. It is going to be out. I'll be putting more of it up on Medium. You can follow the work as I write it on Patreon. We're doing oh, hell yeah. Work. Okay. And you have a Patreon, so we will also link that in the notes. Jared Surf, thank you for being here. As always, illuminating to talk to you. Let's do this again. I'm glad we were able to do this. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.